Blog Talk Radio. Interviewing your favorite musicians, comedians, and other creative souls. This is the Carrie Edelman Show. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Carrie Edelman Show. I am very excited tonight as we have the director and filmmaker Jeremy Campbell joining us momentarily to talk about his short film that he just released titled Velvet Vengeance, as well as many of the other films that he has under his belt. And I just want to say personally, I really love Velvet Vengeance. It's an amazing film. I'm hoping tonight he can fill everyone in on where they can get a copy of this and preview it. I'm sure he's going to be featuring it at film festivals. So we'll talk about that momentarily. So again, if you are tuning into the show for the first time, uh, please create a Blog Talk Radio account by going to blogtalkradio.com. You can also call in tonight if you'd like by dialing 805-243-1320. And if you tune into the station, the number is right on the front of the station page. So before I bring them on, I just want to give everyone a little bit of background on the show and uh, about myself. Um, I started the show approximately over a year ago with the concept of bringing a forum where I could bring people on in the entertainment industry. It could be comedians, filmmakers, musicians, um, anyone doing something creative where I could give them a forum to support them and help spread the name of who they are and get uh, their products and their names out to the masses. Um, personally, I know how difficult it can be and how challenging when you are involved in the entertainment industry and you're an independent person, you're managing everything on your own as most of us start out. And uh, personally, I've continued to go down that road and continue to stay an independent um, artist and manager of myself, but it is getting more and more difficult over time um, because when you work really hard and Jeremy will be able to vouch for this, you know, things will start to slowly happen for you. So my background is I have my doctorate in clinical psychology, and uh, that's predominantly what I do full-time is I work as a clinical and forensic psychologist. Um, I'm also a singer-songwriter with the full-length album out and um, dabbling in doing some featured artist work now with a variety of different musicians and bands, so I'm looking forward to continuing to stay involved in the industry that way. And I also write for some entertainment magazines where I combine psychology and marketing and advertising concepts to help people uh, support themselves and uh, help them promote themselves, too. So on my show, you're going to get a really good taste of what these people's lives are like and what it's like to be in their profession. A couple of things I just ask for people to keep in mind is um, my guests, I want them to be open and grounded and feel free to talk about whatever they'd like, but to just please keep any um, you know, personal information such as specific names of people or organizations anonymous if they want to talk about any humiliating or embarrassing stories, which please feel free to share. I'm a big fan of comedy, but again, I don't want to personally embarrass or humiliate anyone um, on the show. And the other thing is that although I'm a clinical psychologist, I do like to put out there that this show is not meant to be a forum that is providing any type of uh, therapy or treatment. Um, I have no problem talking about psychology and more general educational terms, but it won't be done in a way to personalize uh, it to anyone specifically. So, again, if you are tuning in, please create a Blog Talk Radio account. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Jeremy, and then we're going to bring him on. So, as I mentioned, he um, has his current film out, which he is currently promoting, titled Velvet Vengeance. And he has another couple of uh, short films under his belt, titled The Horror Club and Try to Survive. 
and his films have been featured um, all over the place at film festivals. He's been nominated for awards, and uh, I know he's looking forward to eventually doing his uh, first full-length feature film, and hopefully he'll fill us in on that tonight. Um, he does talk in his bio about how he has struggled uh, growing up, and uh, he's worked extremely hard, and I'm hoping he'll share some of that stuff with us tonight, because I think people can really relate to and empathize with that type of stuff. But uh, he's really pushing forward and uh, breaking into this industry, and I'm looking forward to stuff he's going to be doing in the future, as well as promoting everything that he has done tonight. So let's bring him on the show without me continuing to babble, and um, we'll talk with him. Hold on one second. I'm a little. I have so many different windows open. Let me just get them on. All right, Jeremy, how are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. I had a little bit of a scare there for a moment. <laughs> that was my. I know. My, you know, honestly, right? I was just about to log onto my computer and see. Right? I was like, oh man, you know, yeah. And you know, and it's always the most important moments like this when you suddenly have to pee. You know, it's like right. I'm about to bring a monster. <laughs> oh crap! There it goes. But no, right. thank you I, so much for bringing me on here. Oh, absolutely, and I, I apologize about that. I was, like, freaking out. There was something wrong with the computer. The station wasn't loading, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this would be the first night out of, like, 80 shows that I've done that this would happen. So I was like, you know what, let me shut the computer down, calm down, using my psychology, trying to relax, and uh, reloaded it and everything. Luckily, it went well. So, uh, yeah. See, that's it's the a, cool, yeah. That's the cool thing, though, because that would only happen with me. So. <laughs> That's, no, yeah. believe me. Yeah. No, it wouldn't, Jeremy. They know me. They're like, that's Jeremy. Jeremy did that. That's Jeremy's luck following him wherever he goes. Oh, why uh, do you say no, that? Cool, do, you, do you feel like you have bad luck? Oh, I've got great luck, and that's always the thing. I think it's like kind of a funny little twist of fate that it's like all the odds will be stacked against me just so I can prove that it can be done. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, so yeah. I'm that guy. I figured we haven't had a Sylvester Stallone in a long time, so <laughs> I might as well be the next Rocky. <laughs> nice. There you go. And you know what? I mean, to be honest, but the show's about you. I can totally empathize and relate to everything you said because if I didn't continue to push forward, none of the things that I've worked so hard for would begin to happen. So I can totally relate to you, and I just tell you, Jeremy, just keep working hard, be perseverant, and things will fall into place. They will. Awesome. Yeah, well, they already are. I'm on your show. So. Oh, thank you. you. Again, you've been so animated, and it's such a pleasure, again, having people that, you know, want to come on, that promote it. And I tell everyone to do that because there's only so much I can do on my own. So the more that the the guests promote it with me combined, the more that we're going to get a great audience. And as I mentioned, too, and I know you've been promoting it, the podcast is extremely well. So we'll keep promoting it after the show and keep spreading your name out there. Absolutely. The only place you can work before success is in the dictionary. What did you say? Yeah. The only place you'll find uh, success before work is in the dictionary. Nice. (laughs) Very well said. (laughs) I'll have to get the dictionary and make sure I'm right about that. (laughs) Awesome. So let's um, let's start a little bit, I guess, about talking about, I think, you growing up in some of your bio, because I think that could really be interesting for the audience to just hear about who you are as a person. Um, and I want you to talk about just as much as you feel comfortable. I don't want to be prying or anything like that. But I know that you've, you know, mentioned in your bio that you struggled a lot. And, uh, you know, growing up you had to be thrown into the workforce early on. So tell us a little bit about growing up and your background. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, no shame in my game because uh, I think the more open I can be, the more people can relate to it and they'll see uh, you're not the only one. This world is full of people who, you know, had to fight their way through some hard times. You're not the first. You won't be the last. 
So, you know, get through the other side so you can pull somebody out. Uh, so, yeah, welfare baby, if that's what you're trying to get to, it's total welfare baby. Uh, <laughs> but uh, born 1984 with a uh, single with mother, uh, father, mom, mom was 18 years old when she had me, and my dad was 23, and I was the second of three children. My mom had her first child when she was 16. So I think that kind of sets up the scenario of what kind of income I was born into. Wow. Uh, my dad was a, yeah, my dad was a real hard worker, and he painted houses. At uh, one point during a recession, he shoveled snow uh, to bring in some income. Uh, and then he became over-the-road truck driver when I was four, maybe three or four, but he had a very violent temper, extremely violent. I know a lot of people say, you know, my father hit my mother, my dad, you know, he would a little further just, than just hitting and so a lot of uh, memories of just, you know, never knowing, you know, when things are going to hit the fan and what's going to happen and a lot of moving. And as soon as we get settled down to one place, we'd be moving again. And when I was six years old, my mom permanently left my dad. Uh, so she was a single mother, 24 years old, with three tr- three children. Uh, we stayed at Salvation Army for a while, lived with family members. Uh, and then it eventually got to the point where my mom couldn't afford to take care of us anymore. So what was supposed to be, you know, like a weekend visit at the aunt and uncle's house, the mom never, my mom never came back for a while. Uh, and then I rem- yeah, and uh, the one con- – see, and this all has a me- – you know, but the biggest thing is really – it sounds weird, and it sounds like I'm making this up, but the truest fact is if I look back on every single movie in my life, I can tell you exactly what movie I was watching at that point because that was a wow. great case. Yeah, Why don't you tie uh, that tie that in a little bit? Because that's interesting. And again, it's like you mentioned, it's it sounds like a really hard upbringing. Um, but it seems like you were able to kind of, as we would say in psychology, really reframe things, look at things from a positive perspective, and and use what you learned growing up in such a way that you can kind of better yourself and move forward to what you want to do with your life. Yeah, and the great thing though about being six, seven, eight years old is you don't know you're living in the Salvation Army. It's not like you woke up someday and you said, oh, my God, we're homeless. Uh, as far as I was concerned, because they set us up in our own little room and stuff, we were living in an apartment building. And I was like, hey, this is cool. You know, we got a daycare down here. We watched the Ninja Turtles down there. Good times. Right. Uh, yeah, and it actually wasn't until we, you know, my mom eventually took us back and uh, we moved uh, into a nice neighborhood. And I didn't know what housing was. I didn't know what Section 8 was. But we were on emergency housing where the government pays for your uh, house. And okay. we were one of those people, God bless you guys, but we were those people that people like to say is a drain on our economy. They're what's wrong. It's those people who don't want to work. Ladies and gentlemen, my mom worked her ass off, all right? And right. she needed a little help from time to time. So, you know, open your heart and try to have a little compassion. It won't kill you. But uh, <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, living in this neighborhood, though, is a nicer neighborhood, and I thought, well, hey, this is great. You know, we live in a nicer neighborhood. Well, you know, next thing you know, you got kids throwing rocks at your house saying you're, you know, you're on housing, you know, welfare baby. And uh, realizing now in hindsight looking back what it was was all the people who lived in that neighborhood were a little bit older, a little more established and had their kids later in life. And now you've got my mom, who this is the early 90s, rolling through the neighborhood, got the windows rolled down, blasting Motley Crue with her big giant fro. <laughs> uh, Aquanetted out, and you know you got the you know me and my brother and sisters were scrappers, man. You throw a rock at our house, we're throwing a rock at you. Uh, right, right, so right. Like, you know, we, yeah, we just bought the trailer park to this party. So, uh, 
we eventually left that place. We moved out to Arlington to a place called Woodland West Apartments, and that was uh, the first time in our life where we really had a sense of stability because uh, my mom had married. She did never. They never got married, but we still consider him our stepdad. as a gentleman who I'm refraining from using names. I don't want to. So if, if at any point sure. I don't mention anybody by name, I apologize That's to you okay. guys. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Because if you start naming names, you're going to forget somebody, and then they're going to get offended. So right, right, right. Better, yeah. So they're like, well, what about me? You didn't mention me, you know, so I apologize. But we uh, moved into a place called Woodland West, and my stepdad became a uh, night manager at a grocery store. My mom became a shift manager at a uh, fast food joint. And it was the first – and everybody in the neighborhood was on housing. We joke about it, <laughs> you know. Uh, everybody was poor. Almost everybody had single moms or – uh, came from working class, and we all really bonded over that. And our biggest thing was movies. We really and we started what's called the horror club. Okay. Uh, and we would all yeah, and we would all meet together and watch horror movies, and especially you know uh, Halloween. Uh, Witchboard was a huge one. It's a forgettable '80s film that nobody remembers except for me. But brilliant. Okay. Uh, yeah, Brain Scan and music because this is, you know, mid-90s, so it's all Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains. So we're a bunch of, you know, flannel-wearing kids walking around with our Walkmans on, listening to Nirvana on our way to the video store. Uh, and it created this, you know, great bond and these wonderful memories. Like, even now, sometimes, uh, when me and my wife go swimming, I have to watch Friday the 13th afterwards. It's like, honey, i got to watch Friday the 13th now. It's like, you know, it's like so embedded in me. This is what... You know, and I can hear that. So, theme. how did you um, just real quick to digress? Like, and that that's a, that's amazing, and that's a great way, like you said, that you had some camaraderie and you met some people that you had stuff in common with, and you really bonded. So, how did you guys just? I guess was it just talking with each other that you decided you all liked movies and specifically horror movies that you created this horror club? Uh, no, actually, it was my best friend before he was my best friend cracked me in the eye with an acorn and cut my eye open. Okay. Uh, or oh, right above yeah. my eye. Uh, I had gotten in a fist fight with a kid for messing with my sister, and we're like, you know, right, we're in each other's faces, punches are being thrown, and I turn around and next thing I know, it's like flash, warm feeling down my face, what's happening, I can't see out of my eye, and I assumed I got punched. Uh, and, well, he, we found out who did it, he apologized, and, uh, you know, we kind of, after that, you know, he became, hey, there's that guy who hit me in there with the acorn, how are you doing? He felt guilty, so he started being nice to me, one thing led to another, and it really was, it was literally like, uh, because like I said, movies had, my whole life had been there, and I'd been my one constant companion, uh, and he was two years older, and he had older brothers, so everything I was interested in, he was more aware of, and he kind okay. of became like a mentor, and so he was like, oh, you like Friday the 13th, you know what we need to do, we need to watch like every single one of them. And I was like, oh, really? Okay, cool. Yeah, let's do that. And it became like literally like a summer project. We had to know every single thing. And I was so incredibly fascinated with movies. I would go to the video store, and I couldn't afford to rent a movie. I would read the boxes for like Aww. hours on end. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I just had to know every single aspect. And so, and I mean, going to the theater, sneaking in to go see Time Cop with Jean-Claude Van Damme, or uh, see What's Craving's New Nightmare, we, you know, buy a ticket for the Lion King and then run down the hallway and see that. Right. But uh eventually, yeah, <laughs> eventually cool. we end up moving yeah, eventually we end up moving away. Uh Cliff le- whoops. Uh stepdad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh okay. stepdad Yeah, stepdad left the family to uh be, go quote unquote find himself. 
uh, and we found ourselves homeless again. Uh, and now I was a teenager, and I got my first job when I was 13 years old, tearing off roofs for my uncle for his roofing company. And really the money was going to my mom to pay our storage unit because we were sleeping with family members uh, at their houses, and all of our stuff was in storage. And okay. uh, eventually, yeah, eventually we got through that spell. That was about a year. And uh, you know, even then, uh, uh, you know, I could still I, I couldn't watch movies anymore for that year because we were living with other family members. So you just watch whatever they wanted to. But I could still slip on my headphones and you know, just flip away into a song and read a story, especially EC Comics, Tales from the Crypts, and Stephen King novels, and Arl Stein's right. Fear Street, mm-hmm. and just create this fantasy world, and you know what I mean, and this idealized version of, uh, well, what would you do in that situation, you know, and nothing else would matter, and you could do that all day until it was finally time to come in. Uh, well, uh, we eventually landed back in Cleburne, uh, because once again, the housing list is shorter was shorter out there, and we couldn't afford to live in Arlington anymore. In fact, the last house we lived in in Arlington was a trailer that was condemned after we moved out. Oh, uh, wow. And we couldn't even afford that. Yeah. And, and it wasn't for lack of trying. My mom did everything she could to make a living. Sure. And, uh, no, I mean, Jeremy, uh, it seems like your mom was just an extremely hardworking, motivated woman who wanted to do the best for you guys. And, you know, like you said, unfortunately, things were changing all the time, and it was hard for her to, you know, keep some stability. So, again, I just I give her credit and you know, you guys credit, so that's, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and once we landed back out in Cleburne, you know, living in Arlington, I was normal. Uh, no matter how much money you made, you bought your clothes from the thrift store because it was just like, I don't know, it was just a thing to do. So right. I fit right. right in. And uh, everybody had long hair or dyed their hair or spiked their hair, and we all went to concerts together, and we all listened to extreme crazy music, you know. Uh, <laughs> right. And then, yeah, and then I got to Cleburne, and suddenly, I kid you not, I was labeled a Satanist, which was the weirdest thing to me because I'm a profess, I'm an announced Christian, so I'm like, I worship Satan. Why were they? So why was just give the background on why were they labeling? Was that because of appearance? I mean, what drove them appearance. to give you that label? Pure, one hundred percent appearance. I mean, you see a kid really? come to school for the first time, and. He's got ripped jeans, a Metallica shirt. And this is before Metallica became Metallica, you know, 100 right. million albums selling. <laughs> you know, everybody listens to Metallica. This is especially, you know, post-grunge, uh, alternative soft rock, Matchbox 20, you know. every right. you know, and, and this is a small country community on top of that, and everybody grew up together, uh, and everybody knew each other. And so not only am I the new kid in town, and when I say new kid in town, it's not the new kid in school. You're the new kid in town because this is a small mm-hmm. town. Everybody knows who you are. And you're socially awkward. You prefer to be left alone. You re- you're obsessed with the Amityville horror story, and you got to know, was this real? And then they teachers, they got to know, I think he may, he, you know, he's obviously dealing with some issues. His father had rage issues. This could be a problem. And I'm like, none of them have any kind of degree in therapy, but suddenly all of them thought they did. Uh, and if you push a teenager long enough, you will convince them that something is wrong, regardless if there is. Uh, right. So they kept pushing until finally I was, you know, I was like, I must have some major issues. I thought I was okay, but wow. <laughs> uh, so I'm, yeah, and uh, my mom eventually had to pull me out of school, and I started homeschooling. Uh, and, I mean, literally, up to that point, I had never drank an alcohol. I had never done any drugs. I was, a, you know, I considered myself a very good kid who was very highly motivated to better my situation. But it just so happened 
uh, I just wanted to be left alone. That was the biggest thing. So you see the kid who's sitting alone, dressed in black, reading a Stephen King novel with his headphones on, and you walk over, well, what are you listening to? And you put right. it on. Yeah, and I'm listening to Motorhead, and it's suddenly, oh, well, this kid, you know, he's an outcast. He's a social, you know, and all this, and so on and so forth. But anyways, mom so real, real quick, school. Jeremy, just to, just to backtrack a little bit, you had to literally drop out of school to get homeschooled because you just because the kids were just so mean? Oh, it was terrible because then the biggest oh thing gosh. was I couldn't fight back. Yeah, and I couldn't fight back because let's say a kid, let's just say something like this would have occurred. Let's just say hypothetically. Okay, I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie, this happened. Uh, let's say somebody decides <laughs> they want to chunk a basketball at your head. And in retaliation, you want to pick this kid up and slam him to the ground and pound him in the face because you chunked right. a basketball at my head. That's a sign of, you know, you want to fight, so I'm going to defend myself. Well, next thing you know, pow, I land in detention for uh, lunch detention for two weeks. Well, well right. I mean, this, is, I, this really happened. It was the weirdest series of events, and you can just tell they were trying to push me out. While I was in lunch detention, a uh, teacher brings a note and uh, says, hurry up and get back to class. And I'm joking, and I wrote like some kind of silly little message on it, never intended her to see it. And then I crumbled up and laughed, and I turned around, and she's standing behind me. Uh, so that landed me in isolation, where they put me in this little booth for three days. I swear to God, oh I felt gosh. like I went to the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh, that's uh, crazy. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, and you've already got a kid who's socially awkward. Here's a good idea. Let's put him away by himself. Uh, so, I, you know, hung out in my booth for three days. And then the day I got out, uh, I was in the restroom. And, you know, in Arlington, we roughhouse a lot. And we gave each other swirlies where we, you know, try to shove each other's head down the toilet. And it was rough working class neighborhoods where we fought a lot. And there was a kid who I thought was my friend, and he shoved me, and I thought we were playing. And so I started wrestling around with him, and I was a really strong kid. And I swear to God, to this day, I never intended to hurt anybody. I never even right. knew he was hurt. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm laughing. He, the, the harder he fought, the more I thought we were playing. So the harder I fought. Well, bathroom, I go to class. And uh, I look, I, and, you know, I'm in the homeroom, and I look in the door, and there's my principal and a bunch of other people, and they put me out to take me to the principal's office. And they tell me that this, you know, do you terrorize this kid? And because and it's your rage and all of this stuff. And, you know, you're not fit for this school, so you're going to go to alternative school. I got put in a uh, school with people working to get their GEDs. Wow. Uh, so, and you were just, like you said, you were just playing around with this kid. You did not anticipate it was going to be some, like, huge to-do. But evidently. Yeah, exactly. And, right. Wow. And especially because two weeks before that, I had gotten in a fight. A legitimate fight because the guy threw a basketball right. at my head. Right, 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 uh, right, exactly. <laughs> so he right. called me a Satanist. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. So, yeah. So, and here's the thing: it was supposed to be 30 days. Well, every time they kept adding days for the weirdest things. I'll get my uh, weekend report, and it would be, you know, your shirt wasn't tucked in properly, or your belt wasn't of regulation, oh and all this stuff. So, I was halfway through. I went through half of like. Literally, I was halfway through the next school year before I finally got out. Uh, and I cut all my hair off. I had my mom buy me some new clothes, and I decided I'm going to do my best to fit in. But that mm-hmm. was the worst. That's when, I, that's when I really got depressed because it's like you're not being yourself. At first, I could, you know, I could, you know, I was okay with people messing with me if I still in my heart of hearts knew I was being myself. But, you know, trying to be somebody else and then still have people mess with you uh, was really tough. Wow. But that's when my yeah. mom decided to go ahead and homeschool me. 
which was the best decision. It really was. And, uh, well, while I was homeschooling, my best friend became the kid who lived next door, who he was also homeschooling. And uh, we had a lot of little silly adventures. You know, we were the two outcast kids in school, so, you know, we had a lot of – or in town, so we had a lot of fun, you know, being silly and just kind of living up to our new reputations. Right. Uh, but uh, we uh, – one day, uh, one of my favorite places, because I became such a recluse, and uh, the only places I ever went anymore were, like, the local bookstore, the comic book store, and the video store. And – my life became watching movies and reading books and uh, daydreaming, kind of walking around town. And Cleveland's a creepy-looking town to start, so, you know, you start imagining all kinds of crazy things, like that, you know, that house and coming up with these wild stories. Right. Uh, <laughs> so one day I'm at the comic book store, and I've seen the script for uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street because he sold a lot of horror movie memorabilia, and that was right up my alley. And mm-hmm. I... Alone. You know, I was always trading with him or trying to scavenge money together by uh, raking yards or mowing lawns or recycling cans to buy whatever, you know, goods he had. And that was the one, uh, man, it's so hard to describe. I always want to put the emphasis on how important this moment was in my life. But okay. I just, and there was a lot of scripts that were out, but I wanted that one so Bad. And, I mean, I remember trying to trade with him, coming up there with CDs and books and comics and saying, I'll trade you all of this. This is like $50 worth of stuff for that one screenplay, and you wouldn't do it. Uh, wow. So, yeah, <laughs> well, me and Aaron. Yeah, and I was like, my mom at that point was driving 50 miles a day. In an old, I kid you not, 50 miles a day, because Cleveland's such a small town, so you have to commute to make any money. Uh, so she was commuting 50 miles a day one way, 100 miles both ways more sometimes to clean apartments where if somebody moved out an apartment, it was her job to come in and clean it out. Uh, okay. And there was an old beat-up pickup truck that sprayed oil and didn't have air conditioning, and this is the heat of summer in Texas, and she's doing wow. this. Oh, my god. So, uh, you know, asking her for $20 wasn't an option, uh, which she probably would have given me the money, but I just never had the heart to ask her for anything. So... Uh, me and Aaron one day on one of our little adventures, we found an old warehouse and wound up it was a series of road ha- uh, warehouses and it kind of looked like an army barrack. And there was old broken down trucks and stuff out there and we found out what it was was a road station from when they were building the roads in Cleburne. Hmm. Uh, yeah, we were digging around in there, seeing what we could find, and I found the original road plans to Cleburne. Uh, totally lied to Aaron. I'm like, I didn't find anything in that room, man. There's nothing. Hit him because I was like, Aaron's gonna want. If I sell these, Aaron's gonna want half the money. Uh, so hit him. Next morning, wake up super early, ride my bike across town, get the road plan, ride back across town, and sold them for twenty dollars store, uh, and bought the screenplay for Nightmare on Elm Street. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, read it, it is a great day. film, I mean, though. I loved. I mean, that was one of my favorite horror movies. Definitely was a big fan of that one. Yes, yes, trust me. And uh, not to get too far off subject, but it, what it was yeah. is Wes Craven was self-taught, and his biggest influence were uh, the French Impressionist uh, uh, directors like Fellini and Truffaut. So there wasn't a standard American style of, you know, here's your master shot, here's your medium shot, here's your close-up. Wes was a guy who was like, he's going to shove the camera up the actor's nose because he doesn't right. know any better. You know, there's no rule. It's, you know, he, he learned from the French, and the French are crazy uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Fellini's Eight and a Half, but that movie is a mind which, trip. Which one was it? Uh, Fellini's Eight and a Half. 
No, I've never heard of that one. If you like story, you'll hate it. If you love crazy imagery, you'll love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you'll have to t- send me a private message with the, the name of it. Spell it for me so I could definitely check that out. That sounds cool. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Right. I can't get so, through it. Uh, it looks like, oh my man, well, I'm just entirely too small. What's it about? I have no idea. I, <laughs> like, Is it just uh, really like I, gory and just really no, kind of no, crude? No, no, no. And, Wes, oh, oh, Wes, never seen, Wes never seen a horror movie until Not Living Dead. Uh, okay. He grew up uh, strict Christian, uh, Southern Baptist, and never even seen a movie outside of Disney until he got to college. Wow. Uh, he, he got in the horror aren't because that was the only thing that somebody would hire him for. He's trying to be a director. And of all people, it was Sean Cunningham who went on to create Friday the 13th who hired him to direct the horror film that became Last Off on the Left. And, okay, uh, did, okay. Yeah, so in the last off and the left was so brutal and in your face, yeah. neither one of them could ever get a job outside of horror. So, <laughs> yeah. So well, Yeah, Wes, I do remember that. That's crazy. Yeah, it becomes like the master of horror, the Hills Have Eyes, and Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. And Sean Cunningham, based on his reputation and based on the fact that Halloween is making a lot of money, well, what's another scary day? Friday the 13th. I love that guy. Greatest ripoff artist ever. He is brilliant. Uh, he like he. I mean, and then after that, Porky's was popular, so he made a movie called Summer Camp. So Sean I Cunningham, do remember that. I remember that. Yes, yes. So if there oh was a gosh. popular movie, you can prom. I can promise you, Sean Cunningham made a low rent version of the same thing. Uh, so you had Halloween, so he had Friday Thirteenth. But anyways, back to my story. Uh, yeah, so let's definitely start um, taking kind of your fascination with Nightmare on Elm Street and your horror genre and start, oh, yeah. you know, tying that into Velvet Vengeance and some of the other stuff that you've uh, worked on. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, read that, and it totally opened minds. Up to that point, like I said, I was totally aware of movies. I knew who Wes Craven was. Uh, and if you had asked me who's your favorite directors, I would have said Wes Craven, John Carpenter, Clive Barford, George Romero, David Cronenberg. But I didn't know what a director did. I just knew their names were on all of my favorite movies. Uh, but The Nightmare on Elm Street was written from uh, Wes Craven's perspective, since he was also the writer, and it had his director's notes in it. And it would say, you know, long panning shot follows Tina down dark hallway. Uh, and, you know, it was the things like, uh, long, or actually long tracking shot. And I, you know, obviously had seen the movie before, so I figured that's what a long tracking shot is. So what this guy's doing, or panning shot down to Tina's house, camera mm-hmm. pushes through the window into close-up of Tina. And I realized he's using the camera to tell the story. I'm like, there's wow. a alignment into how and why to move the camera, and the director's one doing that. He's telling the story. I was like, I want to be a director. It's totally set cool. me on the path. I became so obsessed. I started, but I, I knew already that it would never be, I was like, you know, you're homeschooled. You don't have any money. You're not going to be able to go to film school. Go ahead and accept that fact now. And this was the conversation I was having with myself at 14 years old. Uh, so I figured if you're going to do this, you're going to have to do it on your own because nobody's lining up to help you. Nobody has yet, so you're just going to have to outwork everybody. So there was no Internet back then. Well, there was, but we didn't have it. And, you know, if you did, and then, you know, it was that dial-up AOL type thing. So this was, like, right at the birth of that. So there wasn't, like, you know, I could just go online and research this stuff. And Cleburne's bookstores and library didn't carry anything on filmmaking, so all I really had to get started with was that Nightmare on Elm Street screenplay and my movie membership card, video store membership card. 
So I would just watch movie after movie after movie, ranging from Slumber Party Massacre to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to, you know, Westerns. Uh, mm-hmm. Just trying, and I would make notes. Okay, they did this shot here, and then I would write why. And I would have to answer myself, why did they do that? And that's how I learned the language of filmmaking. Wow, uh, that must have, I mean, just personally, I mean, that must have been one of the best ways, though, to learn, too, just that kind of hands-on approach where you're actually analyzing you know, each clip and kind of trying to figure out why they're doing it from the perspective they're doing it from. So that's really cool. Absolutely. In fact, uh, everybody that I work with today, because I'm mentoring a few young people in filmmaking, the number one thing I stress to them is at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because so many people get bogged down in what type of camera they're shooting with, what kind of editing software they're... Why does it matter if you don't even know how to frame a shot? Right, Uh, right, right. Right on earth and know it inside and out and how to use it, but at the end of the day, unless you know how to frame a shot and why, you are not telling the story. And if you're relying on your DP to do those things, he's the director. You're not telling the story, and I'm not saying that to hurt anybody's feelings or picking on anybody, mm-hmm. but I hold the standard of what a director is very high. And a lot of guys nowadays get away with saying I'm a director by just saying stuff like, I want it to feel like, and I want it to look like, and I hear that all the time now, not from the local film scene. I don't want anybody to think I'm picking on them but in commentary tracks on big, giant feature films where I have no idea what this director is trying to say. So I'm like, how did his crew ever know what to say? And then you find right. out that you had nothing supervising the edit. The DP set all the shots, and he just kind of got paid to look cool and drink coffee and throw out vague descriptions. Uh, so, yeah, that's how I got taught. Well, and then uh, eventually, though, you know, we kept falling on hard times, still moving a lot. Uh and then I fell into a really bad crowd, uh, some people who really kind of had a lot of control over my mind. It was called a church. <laughs> uh, I'm, not trying to, uh, I'm not trying to hate on church. I think church is a wonderful institution uh, that does a lot of good Wait, for a lot but, of people. But, but what, uh, that's interesting. What specifically, because, again, as a psychologist, I do find some of that stuff, especially the – the people just that have that ability to manipulate and persuade people and just kind of, unfortunately, I don't want to say brainwash because it's a strong word, but that's sometimes the truth. What specifically, give us a little bit of background, and then we definitely have to get into Velvet Vengeance. What happens with you getting involved in, quote-unquote, the church? Okay. Well, I don't want to uh, make, because, I mean, uh, my fam- a lot of my family still goes to the church, and I think that's mm-hmm. great because I could really see what is done for them and having a sense of community. And I think some people need people more than other people. Like I don't, I don't, I didn't even like being around people at my premiere. I love people. I have a huge heart for people. I want to help people. Can't stand to be around them. Uh, right. So, so in like <laughs> in church, it's people. Oh, people coming at you from left and right. Uh, mm-hmm. But with this particular church, this was a church that was kind of shunned by all the other churches. They were so they, and their whole thing was, we're not religious. We're we're leaving religion at the door. But they made a religion out of not being religious, where it was like. But their biggest thing impact on me was they used a lot of words like bondage. These 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 movies of yours and this music is bondage. It's holding you back in your past. Don't you want a future of light and blessings and you know, but you're, as long as you're, you can't serve two masters. So it's kind of like Jesus can't, you know, really completely 100% bless your life unless you let go of all this stuff. So I actually boxed up all my horror stuff, including the Nightmare on Elm Street screenplay, and threw it away in a garbage can. Oh and my God. it was like celebrated. It was like, hallelujah, you know, he's letting go of the past, and they convinced me. 
And please, any of my friends, I know who you are, who are listening to this from those days, I'm not picking on you guys. I love you guys. And if you're doing what makes you happy, then that's awesome. Uh, But my number one rule for life is compassion and love for Mm -hmm. others. It's kind of weird the more uh, open and compassionate that America becomes, quote, unquote, the more immoral we become. You know what I mean? It's like so, but what did they do? I mean, what did they do to get you to the point that you basically packed up the one thing in life that was meaningful and passionate to you? Uh, it was just a really big conviction that uh, you know your life has to become the word of God. They even said that when you open your mouth, the word of God should be what comes out because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. Uh, and so, oh and they kind of threw out all these other yeah, they threw out all these other great things too. Like, you know, blesses the man whose sin will not be held against him. So it's like, you know, hey, you're blessed because you're loved and you can move on with your life and share that love with other people. Like, no, 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 ignore that. It's, and they say, it's not about how good you can get, uh, you know, because God loves you anyways, but why do you want? why would you want to be held down by these things? And then you find out, like, everybody in this place has got issues up from here to eternity, so all they're really right. doing <laughs> is projecting all their crap on you. Right, exactly. Uh, exactly. I'm like, right. Yeah, so I'm like the dude who's really saying all this stuff has got like some of the worst anger issues I've ever seen, and I grew up with a man who had major rage issues. Right, uh, and they really oh my gosh, and they re- and I really please guys, I'm you know not bashing anybody. Uh, I really do believe in my heart that church has a lot to offer people. Uh, if you know you're looking for, but you got to make sure you know watch yourself and make sure that, you know, you're still holding true to your own identity. Uh, well, I think, I think, Jeremy, a lot of times what happens, and I'm just speaking, again, in more broad terms, is that, you know, you get a person who's very vulnerable, who's, you know, looking for that, you know, whatever, like you're saying, that love or being part of a group. And, you know, unfortunately, in those situations, you know, this, this is what tends to happen. Um, and what's you know, the someone is, has, not, Go ahead. Well, they're not giving unconditional love. It's very conditional love. It's right. very based on if you do these things, and then we can okay. love you. And if you don't, right. and then they're loving you just so that you'll eventually stop doing these things. I had a guy, I went to a Christian rock concert once, and in Arlington we went to these things regularly, but they were very open, and it was just it just so happened that they, were, uh, they had a certain belief system, and they were death metal bands. I mean, some of the heaviest bands you've ever heard in your mm-hmm. life. Uh, but there was no conditions on it. You were allowed to be, come in there and be free with yourself and love each other and have a good time moshing and everything else, and there was no condition. There was no, once you leave here tonight, we want you to, none of that. It was just come right. in and be yourself. And that's mm-hmm. what drew me to the idea of, you know, spirituality or religion or whatever you want to call it. And then I go to Cleburne, and they're promoting a Christian rock show. So I thought, great, I'll go. I go in my Metallica shirt, thinking literally nothing of it, no thought in my mind that this would offend anybody. Uh, and a guy comes up to me, and he says, if you give me that shirt, I'll buy you one of these shirts. And it was like the Christian band shirt. And I'm like, why the hell would I want to give up my Metallica shirt that my mom, you know, worked her ass off to get me for my birthday for a freaking, mm-hmm. like, you know, homemade Christian local band T-shirt? Right. You know, so immediately it's like, hey, way to turn me off, you know? <laughs> so... <laughs> Good job. Uh, and plus, they had so, really convinced me because I'm, you know, a speaker and I love people that, you know, you're that I had this huge calling that I was going to be, you know, the next face of Christianity and I was going to be a pastor of like this mega church. And they would say this stuff, and like God is telling me and He is sending me this message and this thing to you. And you can see how hearing those things is very powerful, especially when you're that age and you're wow. looking for a purpose in your life. 
so, so how did you then, let's, let's like fast forward a little bit to how did you how were you able to get out of this you know unfortunate situation? I think I like an open eye opener. I seen them for what they really were. Somebody very close to me got into a relationship with one of them and got married, and he started abusing her and somebody else who was extremely close to me. And there was wow. no standing up and saying this is wrong. It was always you don't know both sides of the story. And oh gosh. Yes, and I could not their exact words. And when this person who was a young single mother left this guy and left the church, not a single one of them ever called her to make sure she was okay. Uh, not a one. And it, because we disagreed with them. So if you disagreed with them and then you were gone, you were shunned. And to this day, I have seen them in public. They won't even say hi to me. One of them, I was at McDonald's with my nephew. And one of them there, and they recently had a child. And this kid just ran up to me and started, you know, baby talking, you know. And he jumped up in my lap, and I'm talking with him and stuff, you know. And he needs new shoes. You know, stuff little kids do. And I thought this was really cute. You know, I'd never seen this kid before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's always a good feeling that, you know, if you're exuding enough light and energy that, you know, kids are naturally drawn to you. I'm like, that's a good feeling. Uh, but this guy literally like, snatches his kid up and turns his back and won't even talk to me. Because it's like, well, he's back out in the world. He left the light of Christ to go pursue things in the world. Oh, my gosh. So I left now, and I left them extremely confused and very out of balance and unsure of myself. I didn't know what to do or how to do it anymore. Uh, it's like, so I eventually started to reconsider the idea of being a filmmaker again, mm-hmm. and I kept trying to save up for a camera, and I started watching movies again, but I kid you not, I actually bought, and it was like this big argument I had with myself, like I'd have these arguments myself, like I, but I thought I was praying, but really I was just trying to convince myself of stuff, where I wanted to go out and buy the box set for Friday the 13th to come out, but I felt so guilty, and it's like you're trying to slip back into your sin and all of this stuff. And I I felt so terrible for buying it, I threw it away. Uh, Wow. That's just, I mean, that's crazy. Look at at how powerful, you know, that that entity was over you. I'm not going to say church or whatever. I don't want to get into, my, my, I always took around, my Jewish grandfather always said, three things you don't talk about are politics, religion, and money. <laughs> and I you know, swear, I joke come, around about that. All three of them, right? I'm just like, here we go. I'm going to talk about some stuff. No, we're talking post- about it in a very, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to say comical hey, but way, cool but. Is, hey, the cool thing is, everybody knows how to contact me on Facebook, and I'll be more than happy to hear their opinions. I'm, I won't argue with you because <laughs> I suck at typing and I have terrible grammar, so I'll look like I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'll listen right, to it. Right, right, right. Uh, so, okay, so, so how did you come around to, again, you're feeling guilty now, you're you're throwing, you know, again, things away that you once loved, that you were passionate about, or you're still having these mixed feelings about whether you should get back involved in it? Yeah, well, I eventually completely gave up, not because of religion, but just because I got beat down by my environment, and you, you st- I started just thinking, you know, that doesn't happen to people like you. That's You're out here in Cleburne. Uh, uh, you know, you can barely make ends meet at this point. I was, I think I was 20 or 21 when I finally eventually just completely gave up. And it's like, if it was meant to happen, it would have happened by now. So you got to get over this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, here's the plain hard facts. This is the life you were born into, so you got to make the best of it. So, you know, do what you got to do. And this is the stuff I'm telling myself. And I, it was like, a, I think all the way until I got married, it really was always trying to find balance, you know, mm-hmm. where does, you know, God and all of these different things that I still believe 
fit into these other things that I just feel like this is my identity. This is who I've been since I was a child. This is what makes me happy. Why? So there's got to be some kind of balance and acceptance there. You know, why should it be that these things, you know, are so evil when they don't, you know, in my eyes, I have never met a person yet who Marilyn Manson, or I don't really like Marilyn Manson, but who, I'm using him as an example since he was right. like the whipping boy for churches, but who he genuinely ruined his their life. Go back. There were more issues. It's just they found some identity, and they let it go out in a negative way because they were full of negative energy, but it wasn't Marilyn Manson that did it. That was just a T-shirt. You know what I mean? If you go back, that, you know, a lot of the kids I knew – they had the girls, especially their fathers, left them at a young age, and they were, you know, looking for love and acceptance. So they found it in this way, I, you know. And I found it in church, and it was just—it was actually more destructive. Uh, wow. So it was always like, you know, after that, uh, eventually, uh, I met my wife, uh, who is genuinely my soulmate, the love of my life. Uh, I think everybody, who, everybody who knows me knows I, you know, me, my, my wife really is my better half. I think, you know, she's. She's a wonderful human being, just one of the greatest awesome. people you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, and she really helped balance me a lot. And after, you know, kind of, you know, find, you know, finding the everything and, you know, finding the balance between all of these different things and how to be a responsible adult without going overboard and work mm -hmm. on being a workaholic. Uh, but uh, right after we got married, I don't know what triggered it, we were at a bookstore with my mom because, uh, you know, it was like two days after we got married and my brother was in the Army and we just my mom just got through dropping him off at the airport to go back. And she's, you know, bummed out and sad. She, you know, that's her baby. So we took her out and we were just walking around the bookstore and out of nowhere I suddenly got this idea in my head. I should write a story about the horror club. Uh, but I was like, I, you know, I've, I'm not a writer. You know, I haven't written, you know, my wife is. She's a great author. She knows how to compose novels and whatnot. Uh, she cool. can write it, and she is such a wonderful human being. She bought me a tape recorder so I could record my thoughts, and she could turn it into a novel because she believed in this idea of this story so much. Nice, uh, nice. Well, one thing led to another, and because uh, I don't know how much time we have, and I know I've been rambling on. Yeah, just about uh, you know about like another ten minutes we can we can fit in because usually I do you know between forty five and an hour. Okay. Uh, okay. So uh, we. Uh, uh, Eventually, eventually, I ended up uh, converting it into a screenplay, and the story I came up with to fit into the screenplay was I idealized version of my youth. It was like, what if you know these different characters I grew up with were actually like this, and we lived, you know, and they had this, and we were able to do this, and it became like, what if we all band together and we all met for the first time over the making of a horror film, cool. and how funny would that be? And like all these adventures of you know sneaking out at night to go to the park to work on our horror film, and just this great summer uh, adventure. And that mm -hmm. became the the feature length version screenplay of the Heart Club. The short version that's up on YouTube now isn't the best representation of what I was trying to do, but I was just trying so hard to get you know something out there to show. So uh, floated that screenplay around for a year, no no major interest from anybody, uh, and I found out real fast that uh, there's just a lot of uh, pretentiousness out there. People really like to pontificate and be pretentious, and they call it professionalism, but the truth is they don't have any major connections. They just have a little bit of equipment. So a lot of people are kind of looking their nose down at me like, oh, you're another wannabe trying to get your movie off the ground. Right. So, oh, gosh. Yeah, and uh, I really had no intention of directing it. I did not plan on being a director. That was still something I wanted to do. This just happened to be 
a script that floated into my life that I really felt deeply about. So a year passed by, and me and my wife decided, you know what, let's just buy a camera. Either I'm good at this or I'm not, and if I can get good enough, maybe I can make a trailer or a short film, and -hmm. somebody who knows what they're doing will pick it up, and they'll make this movie for us. One thing led to another. Next thing you know, uh, I found out, I literally, we bought the camera on a Friday. I shot my first short film on a Saturday, and after that, it just took off. Six months in, I'm directing my first commercial. Uh, I'm doing music videos. One year awesome. in, I did Try to Survive, and that got me nominated and got me into my first film festivals. Two years later, after buying that first camera, now we've got Velvet Vengeance, and I'm on your show. Got on the cover of the Cleaver newspaper twice, which is really ironic and funny. Congratulations. Uh, That's awesome. Thank you. And we had our uh, red carpet premiere, which was a huge, giant success. Uh, and I knew it was a huge, giant success because I got a lot of business cards from actors and not a single director that was there even looked at me. So that said a lot. <laughs> I was like, nice. I guess that's a good sign. Right? <laughs> uh, so, and here we are today. Cool. So can you get, and I don't want to give the, the film away, because is it available? Or are you guys getting distribution with it? Or are you looking to get distribution? Uh, you know, gosh, what to do about that? Uh, I feel really guilty about that. I wanted to have it up for sale by the time I came on your show. Okay. But I kind of, well, and the thing is, I, you know, I went back and forth on that, and I was like, you know, do you sell this? Do you not? Uh, I think it's worth being sold, and we're selling it on DVD at uh, film festivals. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, but I'm kind of like, we put it up on, you. I don't know what how to distribute it, as in... Uh, well, if you Amazon could, I mean, put, this is... This is just an idea. I mean, if you had a a website or just a way that people could, you know, even if you set up like a PayPal account, and if someone wanted to yeah. purchase it, you could send it out. I used to do that with, you know, with my album. When my album was released, you know, I did a lot of stuff where I just kind of, people bought it, sent it out on my own, you know what I mean? So that's a way to kind of get yeah. it out there. Well, I, well, yeah, I, I know different methods to distribute it, but my biggest thing is I just want people to see it. And it's hard enough to get people to watch something for free, let alone when they're paying for it. Right, uh, I know. Yeah, and, you know, I understand. You know, you have to tend to your farm, and, you know, you got to update your status. I can see how you wouldn't have 20 minutes to watch this movie. Uh, you know, those damn farms are a bitch. I got gotcha. you. You know, word for friends, you know, got to got to match that score. Well, I think it, whether you do it for, you know, whether you make people pay or you do it for free, I think it's a great film, um, and I'm highly recommending people take 20 minutes because it's, you know, it's not like you said, it's not a full length, it's an hour and a half of your time. It's a great film, and it has lots of twists, and uh, I think it was very well written, well shot. Yeah. Thank you. And I was the only crew member, as usual. So was that? Completely self-taught. Oh, I'm the only crew, I was the only crew member on the movie. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Very cool. I think it goes back to my background of, you know, you just do it yourself. Well, what I'm going to go ahead and do is starting next weekend, uh, you'll be able to, for one weekend, and I think we'll, you know, we'll go ahead and do this to get this out there. uh, But I don't want, you know, but we are selling it on DVD. It will be, uh, we'll be at the San Antonio Horrific Film Fest uh, August 1st. uh, Whoops, September 1st. And uh, we're going to be screening alongside some amazing movies. Uh, especially Nailbiter. I think people need to go out and check out Nailbiter. That movie, it's about a family who gets locked the tornado. They get locked down in a cellar, but they don't realize they locked themselves down in there with something else. Oh, so, like, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Very God, cool. That's what I want to see. Yeah. Uh, well, it'll be so on sale for DVD there, but I think what we'll go ahead and do, and I'll say it here, we'll make it official here, is okay. next weekend, for one weekend, uh, for one whole weekend, it will be on YouTube. And you can go to our page and watch it there. 
watch it wherever you want to, and that way everybody will get a chance to see it until I figure out. Because uh, I just want people to see it. It's not. Yeah. I, I don't want people to buy the D. And if you want to buy the DVD, you can, because there are special features on the DVD, including a hidden film. So. Right. Right. And just give people a little bit of a, a brief kind of synopsis about what the film is about, because I don't want to give anything away. So I'd rather you, you know, kind of convey yeah. that to the audience. Well, the movie is about a young woman who is dealing with the death of her brother, and uh, she is told that the killer, the person who killed her brother, is dead, but she is genuinely not, she genuinely doesn't believe that, and she decides to take it into her own hands to go just investigate and see is this true, and she finds out that it's not true, that uh, there is another killer, and the killer is aware of her and is actually hunting her. And it's, uh, you know, a lot of people have a hard time with it being called a horror movie, and I totally understand it's really not a horror movie, and I think you would even agree with that. It's kind of more of an old-school action thriller, and our joke is it's a Charles Bronson film with an 18-year-old girl playing Charles Bronson. And uh, <laughs> the biggest thing that I keep trying to get across to people is they hear low-budget, indie short horror film or action thriller, you know, and they immediately think, and I understand uh, gratuitous violence, nudity, just stupidity. And I went so far out of my way to make sure that there was none of that. Uh, gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. And I was criticized for that. One guy gave us the worst review ever. He gave us a zero out of eight, and his complaint was there was no TNA and no major gore. So, I don't think you always need that. I mean, some of the. I, love, I don't you think know, you ever need that. Yeah. I really don't. Uh, yeah. I mean, John Carpenter. Uh, one of the greatest filmmakers who ever walked the face of the earth uh, did so much in Halloween with everything being off camera and leaving it mm-hmm. to your imagination. Uh, yeah. And that's where the real suspense lies: is you build it up and you let the the you know the audience imagine what just happened. Uh, I think gore is slapstick. Gore to me is the equivalency of Three Stooges. You know, you laugh your ass off and you see a guy get hit over the head with a wrench. It's the same thing when you watch a really gory slasher film. It's funny. Right. Uh, yeah, and I don't think anybody would ever watch a slasher film and say that was the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life. You always hear that was so much fun, that was so funny, that was you know we laughed so hard at that point. So if you're right. out in the business, yeah. So and to me, it was also a personal story. It really was. Not saying that my brother was killed and I hunted the killer, but if you look at the little things and the little nuances, you have a character who is dealing with something, and everybody has an opinion on how she should deal with it. Right. Yeah, that's, and that's uh, a and great you, way to kind of frame things because then the person, like you said, even when you were growing up, you have to put yourself kind of in the situation and figure out how would you deal with it, how would you respond and react. So I think that's, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yes, absolutely. And notice all the people, for all their best intentions and all their advice, they all have issues. And at the end... You know, she, not to give too much away, but at the end, you know, she is quote-unquote bound uh, or binded, and she has to break free, and she's wounded but stronger. So mm-hmm. that was, I was like, I, I wrote it, I read it, and I was like, holy crap, I am dealing with my church issues. <laughs> interesting. No, that's, yeah, that's, was, that's interesting. Yeah, now that yeah. you know the story and you've seen the movie, you can see that. Uh, and mm-hmm. that was my way of uh, dealing with those things because it really felt like when I was leaving the church, everybody had an opinion on what I should do, but it felt like everybody's got an issue. So it's like, how can I take any of you serious? You know, you're dealing with this, you're dealing with that. None of you are happy, and all of you are telling me what I need to do to be happy. 
So uh, that was, you know, and then at the end, you know, they will do whatever they have to do to keep you under control. Uh, right. And then ultimately, you know, she, she breaks away. Uh, like I said, she's free, but she's wounded, but stronger than she was before for having gone through that. Definitely, and I don't want to sure. don't give the whole ending away because we definitely want people to uh, get you a lot of hits next weekend when you release this. So you yeah, definitely let me know when you're going to put it up so I'll um, do some posts for you to try to get some people to, you know, get some hits and watch it. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be really Thank cool. You. Yeah. And uh, another, yeah, another big thing with the movie was trying to uh, really exercise what I've learned over the last two years and uh, really, I think you can watch this movie on mute and you would know what it's about because I tried to be so mm-hmm. deliberate with my camera movements. Uh, and there was, like, some points where people say, well, the camera was too shaky. I'm like, because the character's going crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> you <know? laughs> right. don't want it to be smooth and clean right there. And uh, one criticism I get, and I take these things as an honor. People don't get it. They think they're criticizing me, but I'm like, thank you. If somebody uh, said, you know, God bless you. Walmart camera, you know, it looks like a Walmart camera. And I'm like, what you are watching is me deliberately shooting this thing in 24 frames per second, tinting it in a particular orange so that it has a grindhouse effect because a lot of people do that grindhouse thing now is in tongue-in-cheek. Like, look how awful we are. I do it with strict affection. I have a deep love for the grindhouse era of filmmaking. You know, that's where my mm-hmm. heroes came from. That's Craven and Toby Hooper and John Carpenter. So... Yes, absolutely. It is not the it is not a saturated, pretty HD looking movie, and I did that on purpose. <laughs> so, right, <laughs> right. Uh, I know. I actually, to be honest, I I miss some of that stuff because I mean, I love the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, in the 1970s, and just the way it was shot, and you don't you just don't see that anymore. So I do miss some of that type of stuff, like you're talking about. I think that's important for people to still capture that. Yeah, absolutely. There's something to be said about that. I really don't get it. I really don't, because some of the greatest movies that were ever made on the face of the earth were made with cameras that today people would say, oh, that's a piece of junk camera. I would never right. be caught using that one. I used, I'm like, dude, it worked for them. Why wouldn't it work today? It's like, well, you know, you know because amazing. I think, Jeremy, like you said, the way that the world is today, you know, they do like things very polished and, you know, pretty. And even, you know, even with music, I mean, when I – you know, look at music. I like bands like Shinedown. I mean, very overproduced. I mean, I like that. And sometimes I forget about the bands from, like, the early 90s, like the Nirvana, where, you know, it was more grittier. It wasn't overproduced, but you still had that same, you know, it, they still had an amazing appeal and an amazing sound. I guess it's just a matter of, I know, it's hard sometimes to convince people to go back to the way things were. I know, it's hard. Well, and to me, it's a matter of do what works for you. If your story is a sci-fi, super high budget, anything it needs to be shot, high def, it needs to be bright, it needs to be pretty. But if you're making a movie called Velvet Vengeance about a girl who's hunting the killer, you cannot picture this movie with that kind of look. J.J. Abrams would, like, he would have a heart attack trying to direct this thing. Right, Uh, right. So So let's real quick, we have a caller, and then we're going to, well, let's take one for this one caller for you, and then we'll start uh, wrapping things up. Okay, hold on. All right. Okay. All right, area code 972. You are on with uh, filmmaker and director Jeremy Campbell. Jeremy, it's Roger. Roger, how are you, sir? This is the evil sheriff. Uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, Ah. Yeah. So, how are you doing okay, man? Do what now? With us, Roger? Okay, Roger, Roger? Yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. What's up, Roger? 
uh, just tuning in on the show. Awesome. Thank you. Listen to you. Uh, uh, interesting story, yeah. yeah uh, do you have say, any uh, your questions? Uh, no, I just have some comments. Uh, I, I, Jeremy and I think on the same lines uh, about the uh, local film ministry here. Um, both commented on things on Facebook and, you know, and everything. And uh, I'd say uh, I don't know how the other directors are. I'm sure I'll be finding out in the future. But I'd say mm-hmm. probably Jeremy's a very humble guy. I mean, you know, there's no ego, you know, none of that. So I I cool. enjoy my time uh, that I work with him. Very cool. So, I, I, I definitely can. <laughs> and I definitely can tell that from the interview with him that he's definitely very grounded, as you said, and very genuine and down to earth, which is which is awesome. Well, the problem with the industry here is it's not so much the actors because all the actors kind of help each other, I guess, to a maybe to a certain point. But the directors, mm-hmm. though, they don't support they don't support each other here. They they don't. You know, wow. they, they're kind of they're more slanderous than uh, you know. I, I'm, I guess it's a lot of a uh, you know jealousy, envy type of thing. So yeah, and I'm sure yeah, a lot of competition. Was, you know. Well, yeah, but you're, but everybody's, you know, they're, everybody's trying to, you know, work for the same goal. You know, they're trying to get the right. film out, and you know, and somebody's going to have more money than somebody, or, or somebody's project might be better than somebody else's. But you know, it's, it's you know, it's about support. You know, absolutely. So, and, you know, it's lacking here. It, it is so. Well, that's. Um, I mean, that's a that's a great that's a great term that you use, Roger. Support, because that's why I started the show. Because personally, I knew how difficult it was that I've worked so hard over the years, and it's just so hard to get that break. So I was like, you know what? I'm creating a forum where I'm going to bring people on to support them and help them get their names out there because I have a lot of family in the entertainment industry, very well-known mm-hmm. people. People don't help you, and I don't ask for anything. I've never been like that. But, you know, once in a while, maybe throw a tiny little bone. <laughs> but that was the whole purpose of me, you know, creating this uh, show. So, well, it's harder for us, too, since we're uh, we're not in – this is not L.A., this is not New York. It's not even Austin, right. so – Dallas, Dallas should have a bigger scene. It doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, you know that's slowly changing. But um, you know, but um, but at, yeah, I enjoyed my time on it and um, looking forward to uh, my next project, wherever that may be. So cool. Well, thank um, you so I, much I for calling in. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you. Goodbye. No, 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 no. What did you say? Oh, I guess you hung up. Are you there, Jeremy? Yeah, I'm here. It's okay. all good. Yeah, Roger's oh. a great guy. He. Uh, he hung up too quickly. I was going to let him comment. Oh, uh, yeah, and okay. I understand what he's saying. Uh, and I, I'm guilty of the same thing. I've talked trash on a few directors. Uh, you know, opinions start flying. But at the end of the day, it really uh, – I've gotten to the point where I'm like, if you're really focused on what people are saying about you on the local scene, you're being incredibly nearsighted because there's a way bigger scene out there, and that's what you're trying to break into. So if your goal is to – wow, the local film scene, and then you're missing the mark. Right. Uh, yeah, so, you know, in my opinion, I do want to address these uh, terrible rumors that have been spread about me. Uh, I did work at Home Depot, but I no longer work at Home Depot, so that I'm not a producer who works at Home Depot. I don't have a backyard because I live in an apartment, so therefore I am not a backyard producer who works at Home Depot. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> that was one of my... Okay. That was one of my yeah. Oh, and also, I have never purchased a camera from Walmart, so those images you are seeing are not a Walmart camera. Thank you very much. 
All right. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. All right. So, again, why don't we uh, give a quick plug for where people can find you, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, any social media sites you have, and uh, we'll wrap things up for tonight, okay? Awesome. You can find me on Facebook at 13th Elm Films. Uh, that's the name of our production company, 13th Elm Films. Hint, hint. Uh, and uh, we are we just wrapped on a movie called uh, One Perfect Night, which was directed by Andy Martin, who is the uh, star of Velvet Vengeance. This is her directing debut. It was really important. It meant a lot to me to give her an opportunity to direct, uh, and that's that's the biggest thing with 13 Film Films is it's all about giving the next generation an opportunity. Uh, we are in pre-production for a little ghost story called Grave Confessions, cool. uh, and. We have a director lined up. I can't announce their name just yet. Sorry, man, because we still need to have a meeting and work some things out. And you can find Velvet Vengeance on Facebook.com slash Velvet Vengeance. Just search Velvet Vengeance. And we have all kinds of cool things up there, reviews. Uh, this podcast will be up there. Uh, gosh, newspaper stories, you know, and just all kinds of uh, – and. You know, like you, I honestly don't expect anybody to support me because, you know, who am I in the grand scheme of all the movies that are out there today? Well, uh, you know what? Still... Don't 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 say it like that. I don't mean it that people don't support me. I just mean that it's been a very challenging, difficult road. But along the way, I have to admit, I've met some amazing people and people Absolutely. I've become well, very close with. Um, whether it's you know, there's been some amazing comedians that I'm going to hopefully do some writing with, musicians. So believe me, along the way, Jeremy, you'll you'll meet these people here and there that will become very close friends with you and very supportive of you. So I'm just saying, oh, you absolutely, know, I have. when you I have. start I out. I really have. And, right. Well, I mean, if, right. you know, and I think it shows, too, in my casting. Uh, if you, you know, Andy has been in almost all of my movies and people can say favoritism, this, that. It's like, you know, plain simple fact. Back before anybody knew who I was, she was the one person who was willing to work with me. And the list mm-hmm. goes on. I have some wonderful people, especially of lately. Uh, like I said, I shouldn't have named her name because now I have to name other names, but I won't. Sorry, guys. No, uh, no, no. So forget oh, we got to wrap up. Uh, so, unfortunately, so. I'll, it'll be me. I'll apologize to everyone that Jeremy loves you all awesome. out there, and uh, he apologizes for anyone he couldn't include because the show will eventually uh, – the what's it called? The station will eventually shut down after a certain amount of time because I have to set the time prior to booking the show. So, <laughs> so no anyway, I'm sure. All right. Huge thank you, Jeremy. you. You're proof that there are. Yeah. So you're yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. Okay. Oh yeah, no, no, it was. A, you. Go ahead. You say you go first. We're now talking over each other. It's been a long day. Go ahead. Okay. No, I was <laughs> just thanking you for letting me be a guest on your show and. Uh, you know, really does mean a lot. And like I was saying, I don't, you know, you don't have to support me, but support somebody or something, and that's it. Right, right. No, well, it's a, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for, you know, for sharing your story and, and telling people about kind of who you are and uh, how far you've come. And I really look forward to uh, seeing all the other stuff you're going to have in the works. And I always tell my guests to please keep in touch with me and keep me informed of what's going on. You know I will. All right. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for calling in. All right. Thank you. Bye. Okay. I'll put the podcast up, and I'll send you the link as soon as the show wraps up, okay? Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great night. Yes, ma'am. Bye. Okay. Take care. Bye. Again, everyone, that was just Jeremy Campbell, who is a director and filmmaker, and please check out his show, Velvet Vengeance. Like he said, you can find them on Facebook 
at 13th Elm Films. And he also has a personal Facebook page, too, so you can befriend him. And I want to just thank everyone again so much for the support and tuning in. I'm going to play one of the uh, hit singles off of my album. So if you're still around, please check it out. And it is titled Leave It All Behind. It's under my name, Carrie Edelman. And you can find it on iTunes, Amazon Music, Napster, and all the major digital sites. Tomorrow night, we're going to be doing another amazing show, and I'm going to start integrating more um, causes and uh, different types of things to promote. Tomorrow night, we're going to be talking about epilepsy awareness, and Eric Miller, who is the founder of the Candlelight Concert Series, and unfortunately and sadly, he had lost his wife to epilepsy, is going to come on tonight. He's going to educate us about epilepsy, talk about his concert series that he has where musicians are involved, and it's an amazing cause just to help support and promote and uh, get people to know about epilepsy. And, and a lot of stuff, unfortunately, is known about unknown about the condition. So he'll come on tomorrow night. So, again, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Follow me on Twitter. If you follow me, I will follow you, at Carrie Edelman. I have two personal Facebook pages now because, unfortunately, Facebook gives you a cap on a certain number of friends. So please, if you want to befriend me, uh, search for Carrie Edelman, and if one page is maxed out, befriend me on the other page. And I also have the Carrie Edelman Show, which is a fan page on Facebook, and I regularly update it and promote all of my guests. And I also have a music page, Carrie Edelman. So thank you so much for tuning in. Oh, I want to also give a couple of plugs because usually I take a break in the show, but Jeremy was doing such a great job, I didn't want to interrupt him. So please, everyone, a couple of plugs for the show. People who um, sponsor the show and who I support, Flirt Energy Drink, check them out at flirtsport.com. And it's a female fitness energy drink that has been specifically formulated for the female athlete. Also check out iRockTV.co. And it is I, the letter I, rocktv.co. It's an amazing website that has been created for independent artists, musicians, um, and it's also going to be expanding to a magazine. So if you're an artist out there, you can reach out to irock.tv.co. Sorry, irock.tv.co. Again, long day. And as I mentioned in the show, I'm a huge fan of comedy, so everyone has to check out Davin's Den, which is a fast-paced podcast featuring comedians Davin Rosenblatt, Joe Curry, and Pip Helix. So if you're looking for a show that can think and make you laugh out loud at the same time, Davin sends the show for you. They go live Tuesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time to watch live episodes, hear or watch old episodes, or find out more about the show, go to Davin's Den page on davincomedy.com. And that's spelled D-A-V-I-N comedy.com. So thanks so much, and let's uh, tie things up tonight. It's been a long show, but it's been a really good show. So we're going to play my ballad, Another Life, off of my debut album, Leave It All Behind. Again, you can find it on iTunes by searching Carrie Edelman. Thanks again for the support, and we'll be back tomorrow night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. (laughs) 